give you the praise, the glory, the worship that you so richly deserve. Lord, just help us to have open hearts. Keep our spirits um, ready to accept all that you have as is our promise this morning. Share your word with us, Lord. We just uh, want to give you all the praise and glory and thanks. We ask you to bless this special time in your name. Our text this morning comes from Genesis chapter 32, if you turn there. Genesis chapter 32, and we'll be starting in verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please, tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen the face of God, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over the Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of his hip. Um, obviously, this wrestling match between Jacob and this man who is identified in this text as being none other than God was climatic and pivotal in the life of Jacob. So to completely understand um, what is going on here, we're going to have to survey the life of Jacob in whole, and as well as the importance that he plays in redemptive history. Um, the book of Genesis is a book of origins, so it tells us not only how the universe came to be, but it also explains the presence of good and evil in this world. Namely, God created everything good, set above all creation man and woman to exercise dominion over it, but the man and the woman were deceived by a serpent, a fallen angel who is later identified as Satan, the enemy of God. And this serpent deceived the man and woman, convincing them that if they break God's law, then they will be like God. And so they do. And instead of becoming like God, they become corrupted. And sin enters into the world. The due and just penalty for divine treason would have been death. And that's what God said. If you break my law, you will surely die. But God is loving. God is gracious. And He held off from slaying them in that moment. They suffered a spiritual death. But He did not actually kill them physically. Instead, He covered them with skin, showing that He was going to provide some type of covering for them. And in Genesis chapter 3, he uh, speaks of a lineage that's going to come from the woman, 
that would ultimately bring forth a person who would undo the effects of what had happened that day. And so as Genesis progresses, it's dealing with God and that promise, and that promised lineage, and that promised Messiah who is to come. And in the chapters 4-11, through 11, it talks with God dealing on a large scale with humanity. So we have accounts of the flood and accounts of Babel. But then by chapter 12, the book slows down very slow and takes a micro look at uh, a family, a particular family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Joseph at the end. And we spend a lot of time often looking at Genesis 1 through uh, 11, but not often do we spend a lot of time looking at 12 through 50, mainly because we have a lot of conflict over 1 through 12 and not very much conflict over 12 through 50. But I think by virtue of the fact there's so many more chapters to deal with that maybe we should take closer looks at them. In chapter 12, God tells Abraham that from him is going to come forth one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. All the families of the earth would be blessed. And as the Bible continues on all the way through the New Testament, it's ultimately revealed that what they're referring to is Jesus Christ, who would come and who would die on the cross, bearing the due penalty of sin and death on our behalf, and ultimately undoing the effects of sin in the world. Yet as this narrative of Genesis slows down, as we look at these families, we begin to see that there are inherently some problems. First of all, Abraham. Abraham was promised a son. The problem was, he was old, his wife was old, she was barren, and they couldn't have kids. Well, God miraculously overcomes that barrier, allows her to conceive in her old age, and they bear a son, as promised. Abraham gives birth to Isaac. Isaac later marries a lady named Rebecca. Rebecca has twin boys. The problem becomes, what happens when there's twins? Which way does the lineage go? Now, traditionally, it would go to the older twin. But if you turn real quick to Genesis 25, um, we'll see um, a declaration by the Lord regarding these twins. So 25 verse 21, it says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people will be separated from your body, and one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau, which consequently means red. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, which his name means deceiver or supplanter. And Isaac was six years old when she gave birth to them. So, before either of these children are born, before they had done anything good or bad, in order that, as we're told in Romans 9, in order that God's purpose of election, that is his free sovereign choice, he is God, he can choose who gets the benefit of the promise, in order that his purpose of election might stand, he declares his purpose towards Jacob. Jacob will be the heir of promise. Two chapters later, we might be asking ourselves, if this was indeed a good choice. 
Because it seems that Jacob is true to his name, he is indeed a deceiver. In chapter 27, it describes a scene when Isaac, in his old age, is determined to pass on his blessing, but he wants to pass on to Esau because he favors Esau. His uh, wife overhears it, and she informs Jacob that this is going to happen, and his wife favors Jacob. He's mama's boy. So she convinces him to pose as Esau and to steal the blessing from their father who has weak eyes and is in his old age. And this gets uh, brought up in verse 20, uh, chapter 27, verse 15. It says, Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of young goats on his hands and on the smooth parts of his neck. She also gave savory food, uh, savory fruit and the bread which she had made to her son Jacob. Then he came to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Get up, please, and sit and eat of my game, that you may bless me. Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord your God has caused it to happen to me. And Isaac said to Jacob, Please come close, that I may feel you, my son, whether you're really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, Bring it to me, and I'll eat of my son's game, that I may bless you. And he brought it to him, and he ate. And he also brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of garments, he blessed him. So this is the ultimate deception. Jacob is even using the name of God, saying, Oh, God helped me, so I might come to you sooner. So in some sense, it's almost like blasphemy. He's using God to uh, do his dirty work, because he knows his father would, uh, under, would prefer that to happen. And so, it says almost immediately after the, bless, the blessing, Esau comes in and says, Hey, Dad, I'm back with the game. Let's have a blessing. And he says, and Jacob trembles and says, No, your son... Isaac trembled. He said, no, your son Jacob has already stolen it from you. And so, immediately the family is shattered. Um, Jacob becomes estranged probably from his father, obviously from his brother. Esau decides he wants to kill him. And as a result, Jacob finds he has to flee. He has to flee to another land. And his father suggests that he goes to the land of uh, Padam Aram, which is where his mother came from. So he's got family like uncles and cousins over there. He says, go there and marry someone there. So Jacob flees. And when the irony is, all this work to steal a blessing, he's running from the land which he was to inherit. Things are not looking so good for Jacob. And so we must recognize as readers of the story, as we look at the big picture of Genesis, that there is this moment of crisis. The blessing has fallen on someone who seems completely unworthy, a scoundrel, someone who's morally destitute, who's completely self-serving, and now is estranged from his family, exiled from his own land. And so it seems that God had made a poor choice and the plan has failed. However, in chapter 28, God himself enters the scene. And he appears to Jacob in a dream. 
In verse 12 it says, Jacob had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and of Isaac, and on the land which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. You must understand that the language that God's using right now is covenant language. This is the language that he used with Abraham. It's like a repeat saying, God says, I will bless you. And God notice that God does not actually place any conditions on Jacob. Because simply, Jacob is to be the recipient of promise because it's by grace. Grace, by his very nature, is given to us apart from our merit or our worth. God will do it simply because he said he will do it. He promised and he will fulfill. If it were based on our merit, then God would owe us and God will owe no man. If it was based on our merit, then as we see in Jacob, we could actually never earn God's favor because if we're all honest with ourselves, we're moral scoundrels as well. Right? We have elements of Jacob within us. Well, Jacob is not a quick learner. His response to God is found in verse 20 of the same chapter. It says, Then Jacob made a, vow, made a vow saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you. If you do all this, then you will be my God. Jacob is bargaining with God. Not a safe place to be. And he says, oh, and by the way, God, if you give me all this, I'll give you a tenth of it. So you'll be doing pretty good, too. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's how he enters into Lamb, a Padam Aram, arrogant and foolish. So chapters 29 to 31 speaks of his journey in and stay into Padam Aram. Um, if you recall, he meets his uncle Laban, falls for his beautiful daughter, becomes an idiot, gets tricked by the con man himself. If, if Jacob is a con man, then Laban is the king of cons. He's an old fox. He sees a manip- uh, someone who he can manipulate when he sees one. And so he gets out of Jacob 14 years of hard labor. Yet despite this, uh, these poor circumstances... Um, Jacob prospers. He exceedingly prospers. Big family. Big flocks. Even though his uncle is trying to keep him from getting big family and big flocks. Now, it's not that Laban suffered because Jacob was with him. He got blessed too. But Jacob got so much more blessed that Laban and his family began to get jealous. And so by the end of chapter 31, Jacob is finding himself running again. This time, he's running back home because Laban's hot on his heels probably wanting to kill him. Jacob takes a day's head start, tricks him, gets a day head start, but Laban eventually catches up to him. But when Laban catches up, he comes up and says, in short, I had a dream from God that says, I can't hurt you. So anyways, they have a fight, and when it's all said and done, they set up a stone, and the conclusion of the fight says this, I won't cross into your land, you won't cross cross into my land, if you do, you're uh, beholden to God for it. And that's how it ends. 
So now Jacob moves back into his land, exiled from the other lands. Great life, right? <laughs> and as he comes back to his land, he realizes he's got a problem. Esau. Now, I don't know, 15 years might make you feel a little bit better about life, but, I mean, that was a pretty horrendous thing he did, Jacob to Esau. So there's not, you know, there's, there's a chance that Esau's still mad at him. And so he sends messengers ahead saying, Hi, Esau, I'm back. And the messengers come back saying, He says hi. In fact, he wants to come see you, and he has 100 men with him. Now, as we know from reading the story, Esau comes and uh, falls on Jacob. They cry, they make up, everything's fine. But Jacob doesn't know that. Jacob hears, Esau, 100 men, I'm in trouble. Now, you have to recognize he's between a, hard, a rock and a hard spot because he can't move back because there's Laban. He can't move forward because there's his brother. And, you know, on either side, one of them is going to catch up to him. And so, in desperation, Jacob turns to the only place he has left. He turns back to God. In Genesis 39, 32 and verse 9, it records a prayer, and it's the longest prayer recorded yet in the Bible. And in this prayer, we see a humbled man pleading that God would fulfill the promises that he has made. And frankly, Jacob has nothing left now, but to throw himself wholly on these promises, because he is at the end of his rope. When he entered back into this land, he saw a vision of some angels. So between Laban saying, I can't kill you, God told me not to, returning to land, seeing some angels again, and falling to God in prayer, it's as if to remind him that everything that he gained while he was in Padam Aram was simply because God was gracious to him, because by all accounts, he should not have it and he should be dead. And yet this hasn't happened. So I think he's beginning to realize that falling on God is actually a good place to fall. So after this prayer, Jacob sends uh, a series of extravagant, extravagant gifts to Esau to assuage him a bit. And then sends his family and all his livestock across a river. And he's behind it. So there's Esau coming, family livestock, kids and women and children, River, and then Jacob. Sounds like he's hedging some bets. Or maybe he wants just to be alone and pray. Maybe we can not judge him too harshly. And so now uh, that we've seen this, we return to this climatic moment which we started. Jacob is all alone by the river in the dead of night, thinking he's as safe as he could be, and being suddenly approached by a man. And this man comes up, and engages him in a wrestling match, probably the last thing he expected, surely. And this wrestling match lasted through the night. So, I mean, imagine the fear. Imagine his panic. Despite all his planning and his scheming, Jacob is now caught with his defenses down. And what is to be gained by this wrestling match, if you think about it? What is to be gained? All his possessions, all his money, all his livestock, all his family are across the river. Well, the only thing left to be gained is Jacob himself. Who is this man? Well, theologians say this is a theophany, which is an appearance of God, a momentary appearance, where God condescends, he veils himself in the appearance of a man or an appearance of an angel. He does some business and he leaves. And he's veiled. You don't see the full glory of God when he comes down. If you could see the full glory of God, you would panic and probably die. We understand it from the text itself because 
the place is named Peniel. I have seen the face of God and lived. And then the rest of the Bible refers to this moment as Jacob wrestling with God. This is what Hosea said in chapter 12, that Jacob strove with God and succeeded. Notice that this man did not come with a weapon to slay Jacob. Instead, he came to wrestle Jacob. There's a difference. There's a much different fight. It's much closer. It's much personal. I mean, you're grappling. You're holding on. You're feeling the other person sweat. You're hearing their breathing. And notice that this fight lasts through the night until daybreak, which not only does it attest to the strength of Jacob that he could wrestle for this long, because if you've ever wrestled, you realize after like six minutes you're, you're done. Like you don't want to wrestle anymore. Wrestling's ex- exhausting. So not only does it attest to the strength of Jacob, but the restraint of God. For with the one who upholds the whole universe by the word of his power at any moment could have said, you're done. And by his very word, Jacob would have been done. He could say, you can no longer live. And Jacob would no longer live. So the restraint of God to wrestle with him. From the view of Jacob, however, it seems that he has met his match. This is not someone that he can subdue. At the same time, we were told that the man could not prevail over Jacob. So at best, all we see is Jacob playing defensively. He's not trying to take down the man. He's just trying not to get taken down himself. And so when it becomes clear that Jacob would not be subdued and that dawn is approaching, the man reveals the power that has obviously been veiled. So with a very touch, he touches the strongest joint in the body of a man, and he's crippled immediately. It goes out of socket. With a single touch, a dislocated hip. Now imagine trying to wrestle with one of your hips out of place, and it's not going to happen. The hip is the center of our strength. And God delivers a crippling touch, and just enough, and no more. In other words, he will break that which we place our dependence so that the only strength we have is to cling to him. And that's what we see. A.W. Tozer said, it's doubtful that God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Jacob should have realized defeat in this moment, but I think he realizes that he's wrestling with someone that is not just a mere man. I think he realizes that this is God because what he begins to do is cling to him and beg for a blessing. And as far as this culture goes, the greater blesses the lesser. And he should be the recipient of the blessing, right? It was said it was given to him. So the only reason he'd be asking this person for a blessing is because he knows it's the only one who could bestow that blessing. It's God. And so Jacob clings, holds, clings to this man with a phrase that should probably ring in the heart, true in the heart of every believer, I will not let you go until you bless me. And Hosea 12, verse 4, reflecting on this moment, says, Yes, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication to him. He wept and made supplication to him. In other words, Jacob is holding on, crying and praying, Give me this blessing. So at this point, I think we begin to see the evidence of an inner transformation. That's usually what happens when you come face to face to God. You become, you become transformed. Jacob had always relied on his power, had always relied on his cunning, his prowess, his whole life, but no longer. Now he must humbly rely on the Lord's grace with weeping and supplication. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Which as an aside... 
I think it would be a good time to ask if we have ever wrestled with God through the night to obtain a blessing. The Bible is full again and again and again with prayers of men and women weeping, praying to God His very own promises. They say, you said, God, you said this would happen. So why, why do we ourselves often find ourselves content with our current conditions? Why are we content with the condition of lost neighbors? Why don't we try to strive, uh, strive for God and beseech for His intervention? The question is, are we informed of the promises of which we can cling and beg for? One pastor said, our prayer life is more like a toy that Satan sleeps besides than a missile of war that crushes satanic powers. Why do the giants of church history dwarf us today? Is it because they're more educated, more devout, more faithful, and more full of grace? No. They were men of prayer, possessed with the spirit of grace and supplication. They were Daniels in the temple of God. So, oh, that we would recognize that we, like Jacob, are foolish, self-reliant people, depending on our own strength, our own schemes, our own actions, rather than on a Father who would give us a blessing if we'd ask. So I'd say pray for the grace to pray. Bob says it all the time. Pray for the grace to pray. Resolve your heart to know the promises and the gifts that God has promised to you so that your desires would be engaged to pray. If you know what they are, you'll pray for them. You'll want them. Pray this for ourselves. Pray this for each other. The culmination of this fight is the blessing. But before the blessing comes, Jacob is asked a question by this man. God asks him, what is your name? Come on. God knows his name. There's this guy all alone in the dark on the side of a river. And he comes and wrestles him. He knows who this is. So there's got to be something more going on. Imagine Jacob in this moment. What is your name? Does that recall a scene maybe 20 years ago when he walks into his father's tent? And he's asked, what is your name? And what does he reply? Esau. He won't claim his name. It's a, it's a dirty name. Jacob, deceiver, twister, liar. He won't claim to that. Because he knows deep down inside, he is that. And now God asks him, what is your name? Jacob replies, I'm Jacob. I'm a twister. I'm a deceiver. In other words, the facade was over. Jacob was claiming what he was. He knew who he was. So this was a moment of honesty, transparency. It's a moment of transformation. He's not running from it anymore. It's almost a moment of repentance. If Jacob's going to receive this blessing, we said, it's going to be by grace. It's not going to be by his deceit. It's not going to be by his schemes. It's not going to be by his strength. It's going to be given as a gift by a gracious God, an electing God, who's going to transform us into people that can receive his blessing. So God changes his name. He changes the very identity of Jacob. No longer is he called Jacob. He's called Israel. Israel means he strives with God or one for whom God strives. It's also a play on words. The root comes from the word prince. He's now a prince. It's a very subtle name. It's a very neat name. So at the end of this match, we have a win-win situation. 
the glory belongs to God, for He is the greater one who bestows the blessing. The grace belongs to Jacob because he receives the blessing. It's a win-win. Are you surprised by a God who will wrestle with you, who would seemingly oppose you, who will cripple you? Then take heart. One commentator said, In short, such is his apportioning, that while he assails us with one hand, he defends us with the other. Yes, inasmuch as he supplies us with the strength to resist, then he employs opposing us. We may truly and properly say that he fights against us with his weaker left hand and for us with his right. For while he lightly opposes us, he supplies invincible strength whereby we overcome. It's love whereby God wrestles with us. It's love whereby God insists that we cannot stay as Jacob, that we must become Israel. It's love whereby he cripples us so that we cling to him to ensure that it happens. It's love whereby he shepherds us through these valleys of darkness, but we don't have to fear evil, for he is with us. Now the question is turned in this narrative. Jacob presses for the identity of of this beloved opponent, and he is left with no answer. And it seems like this whole time, this whole time, there's a deliberate vagueness of the opponent who is revealed to be God. He knows he's God. But when the sun's rising and you get a clear look at him, he says, okay, time's up. Day, daybreak. We're going to no longer wrestle. And then Jacob asks him for his name, and he won't give it to him. John Calvin is helpful in this moment. He says, though Jacob's wish was pious, I think that if we realize we're wrestling with God face to face, we say, who who are you? Because your name represents in that culture who you are. It represents your deepest things. That's why when Moses says, oh, who should I say sent me? He says, tell him I am who I am sent sent you. I am who I am, my very being. What am I? I I exist. That's what it means to be God. But Jacob asks, and he doesn't get an answer, So though Jacob's wish was pious, the Lord does not grant it because the time of full revelation was not yet complete. For the fathers, in the beginning, were required to walk in the twilight of morning. And the Lord manifested himself to them by degrees until, at length, Christ, the Son of Righteousness, arose in whom the perfect brightness shines forth. We don't get a clear glimpse of God until we see Christ himself. Do you know that every time the New Testament references any time someone sees God, the New Testament automatically assumes it was Jesus. It was Christ. It was the Messiah. It was the second person of the Godhead before he came and joined himself to humanity permanently as Jesus Christ. In other words, it was the Savior. It was Christ. It was the promised seed. It was... Christ who strove with Jacob that day. And it would be Christ who would strive for Jacob 2,000 years later to accomplish the blessing that he gave. It's Christ who strives for us now 2,000 years ago so you and I might be blessed. That is why, like Jacob, 
And like us, we're so deserving of judicial wrath. But we are not crushed. We are touched, crippled, but not crushed. Although we absolutely deserve to be. This night of wrestling reminds us of another night when Jesus Christ 